Some of you uh, know that I spent part of my growing up years before we moved to Hawaii in, um, in Oklahoma, and my dad was pastoring this small church in a small town. I mean, when I say small, I mean small. There was like 600 people in the whole town. And, you know, it was a farming town and all, and so, you know, they couldn't pay my dad a lot of money. Um, we had a place to live. He got a little bit of money. But sometimes the farmers would, would give us stuff. And uh, I remember one time, uh, as a young person, I, I, I learned what a side of beef meant because my parents had told us that a farmer was giving us a side of beef. So when I came home from school and I went in the kitchen, there was like half a cow just lying on the, like on the counter. And my mom's like figuring out like how she's going to cut it up into smaller pieces and everything. There was another time this farmer told my dad and my mom, said, come on out to our, to our farm and help us slaughter and clean the chickens and we'll give you, you know, as, you know, as many as you need, as many as you can take. And so I was maybe six years old and even though I grew up in Oklahoma, I, I think at heart I'm more of a city boy. Because um, I remember my brother who's like, one year younger than me, you know, just basically being somewhat horrified, uh, <laughs> watching my, my dad and my older brothers and the farmer, you know, cut the heads off the chickens, and uh, we were supposed to uh, help my mom, you know, clean all the feathers off and all of that. Um, and as you might know that um, we have an expression called like a chicken with their head cut off. And if you've never seen a chicken with the head cut off, you can imagine what it's like, and it's probably exactly what it's like. Um, they would try to not let the chickens run around um, when their heads were cut off, but every once in a while, one would get loose and uh, take off. And, you know, they're just don't know where they're running, they've had their heads cut off, um, but they're going to keep running until they finally just keel over. I sometimes think that's what our lives feel like. We feel like we're just running around. We're, we're always on the go. We're so busy. We're like, we're like running around like, with, like chickens with our heads cut off. Except our heads aren't cut off. Our heads are actually, you know, firmly secured to our bodies, I hope. And, and we live in this world where so many people are always on the go. They're so busy, and maybe you're one of them. But there's no real idea of where they're going. And even if they have an idea of where they're going, is it really worth all the running around? You know, as as a professor at college, you know, you know, once in a while you'll hear students that will just say like, you know, I just want to get through here and get my degree and, and go on, you know, and move on. It's, and it's, you know, it's like, why? You're going to be so busy, you're going to work so hard, and just so you can just go. I mean, I, I ask them sometimes, why did you come here in the first place? You know, we, we just get in our mind that the goal is to, to, you know, to accomplish something. 
And so we're going to go, 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 even if what you're accomplishing isn't really what should be accomplished. We run around like chickens with our heads cut off. We find ourselves so busy, even in doing God's work, we can become so busy doing stuff. Um, and that becomes like our expression of, of you know, our faithfulness is what we're doing, that we forget part that an equal, if not more significant part of following Jesus Christ is not just what we're doing, but it's who we are. And if we're just a church that does a lot of stuff, well, there's a lot of churches that do a lot of stuff. But we need to be thinking about, well, who are we? Because part of being the church is being the church. It's not defined by all the stuff we do. And it can get, again, it can become like just an end unto itself to just stay busy. We can become sometimes just exhausted or people getting burned out. You know, that's the, the need we need to do sometimes and frankly, in all the time I've been here, we haven't really done this, but the need sometimes is to just stop. It's just, some churches are really good at this. Every year they, they will have some kind of retreat and they'll just stop. And they'll say, let's refocus. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? What's the direction? Who are we? But so many times we think like, if, if we were to do that, all the people who are really busy, they're going to say what I say whenever I hear about these pastor's luncheons. Like every month before COVID, there's a pastor's lunch. And I go, I can't go to those. I'm too busy. The whole thing of being able to stop, catch our breath, reset. It's not something that comes to us naturally. We believe that if we're not doing anything, then, then nothing's getting done. Some of you, well, most of you probably know by now that I coached cross country and track and field, and we just finished our season, and even though it wasn't a full season and all of that, you know, we still did the season. We still went through the, the phases and the steps that we do, and what did I tell them on Saturday and reinforce with an email message. What did I tell them they should do this week? Told them, do nothing. Rest. Don't run. Don't train. And it's hard because some of them, you know, after the last meet, they're like, you know, they, they saw how much they improved, but they saw how much better they could get. And they're like, you know, I'm, I'm going to come and I'm going to train and, and I'm going to start. You know, if we would have had a practice Saturday night, they would have practiced. And it's like, no. An important part of training is to take times of rest and recovery. 
We need these moments when we stop and we, we refocus, we reset. Not necessarily changing directions, but really, some. I don't wish pandemics upon anyone, okay? Wish pandemics upon anyone, okay? But I'm going to tell you one of the blessings of the pandemic, especially for a lot of the people who are really involved in church leadership and everything. Yeah, it was challenging because we had to find new ways of doing things. But it was also a time to kind of catch our breath a little bit, especially back in March and April of next year, of last year, I mean, when we had, you know, we, we couldn't meet in, in, in person, we couldn't do all the activities we do throughout the week. You know, we missed them. But it was a chance to kind of think and reset and refocus. Can't tell you how important enough that is. That even in your own life, if you're just going to keep running, if you're just going to always be on the go, you will indeed be like that chicken with its head cut off. Well, we're coming back to the text, and it's been two weeks, and we were very blessed these past two weeks. I hope you were able to hear the sermons by Phil and then by Richard Ross last week, and, and, uh, and it was good to, to be challenged from God's Word. And now we're returning to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and let me just kind of catch us up to where we are. The wall has been rebuilt. The gates have been put in place. The enemies have been thwarted. But the problems aren't over, and the job isn't done. Nehemiah is going to be facing what all leaders face. And really, in a church that all of us face collectively, he's been facing it and doing it quite well. But the problem is that when you finish a major, a major project, there's sometimes a tendency to think that the job is done or almost done. If you've ever gone like hiking in, up, uh, up in hills or mountains that you're not familiar with, you know, you can be going along and then after 30, 40 minutes, you know, you think like, oh, I'm almost near the top. And then you get to the top of that ridge and you realize like, oh, there's a higher point up there. And you go, okay. And then you get up to that one and you say, oh, I'm almost near the top. And same thing happens. Well, sometimes when, when we're doing God's work, we, we sometimes mistake like what we think is the, the main project and, and we think it's over, and we think now it's the everybody lived happily ever after part, right? The leader's challenge is, is always to be thinking about God's overall plan. Sometimes when we don't talk about God, we talk about it as the long term. What is the long term goal? But he also has to think about the short term. What are the immediate needs that we have right in front of us? What's the next step? How do we get ready for what's, 
right in front of us, what's coming right after that, and at the same time be thinking about where we're going. And again, I don't just think this is important for leaders to do and for, for groups to do. I think it's important for all of us to do. And as Christians, I don't think we think in these terms enough. And I don't know why. I, I don't know if it's because we're afraid or we just have never been challenged to think like this. But as Christians, we've actually been given the long-term goal. As individual Christians, we've been given the long-term goal. The long-term goal is to be Christ-like. If you wanted to say it in the highest possible terms, it's to be not Christ-like, but Christ-identical. To be just like Christ. Not just in my actions, but in my heart, in my speech, in my thoughts. That's the long-term goal. We should never lose sight of that goal. We should always remind ourselves of short-term things. But then there's all these short-term things right in front of us that connect us and help us to move towards that long-term goal. We've already seen Nehemiah face challenges, some of them unexpected. And what we've seen Nehemiah do is, is he says, you know what? God hasn't changed the goal, but my plans, sometimes my plans need to be adjusted. And he adjusts the plans. So here we are. Walls built. They've even had a celebration for it. But while everybody's celebrating, Nehemiah is thinking about what to do next. So we pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. And it says this, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gateskeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So here's the situation. Here's the new problem. They, they've they finished these walls around this pretty significantly sized city, but there's very few people living in the city. And if there's very few people living in the city, who's going to watch the gates? Who's going to defend it should there be an, an, an attack? There's not enough people in there. A lot of the people are, are living outside the city because that's where they've been living for decades. And they're quite comfortable there. And we get some hints of this. We, we pointed, what that means is they had actually been appointed, and the Levites had been appointed. What that means is they had actually been appointed to watch the gates. How desperate must you be to put your musicians in charge of guarding the gates? 
No, I'm kidding. I would trust our worship team guarding our gates. But think about that. They don't have people to guard gates. Why? Well, they haven't had gates, first of all, for over 150 years or so. Second of all, they just don't have people. People who actually have other jobs. People who have very important jobs in the temple. The gateskeeper is not keeper of gates of the city. They were the keeper of the gates of the temple. They, they had other jobs. But Nehemiah says, you know what? We need to take care of this. Short-term plan is, guys, Levites, gateskeepers, you guys, you're going to watch the gates. And again, we, we, we see that he's just not saying, hey, have at it. He, he, he gives them leaders, leaders that he can trust and leaders that they can trust. Nehemiah doesn't become like the, you know, the, the director or the coordinator of gatekeeping. Instead, says his brother Hanani and then this governor Hananiah. These are people he trusts. And the brother, it's obvious, you know, that why he trusts the brother. But then it points out Hananiah, why he trusts him. And he says, for he was a faithful and God-fearing man, more, more faithful, more God-fearing than many others. See, Nehemiah was faithful to do what God said, build the walls. And he could have been criticized for this. Like, what were you thinking, Nehemiah? Build walls and not enough people to defend it. Well, the choices were, if you're going to do anything about this, is either build houses in Jerusalem without walls or build walls without homes. Nehemiah didn't choose the wall first because it made more sense. It might have made more sense. But he chose it because it's what God told him to do first. Build the wall. Build the wall first. Even though you're going to be criticized by people who are thinking like, why would you do that, Nehemiah? It doesn't make any sense. You've put the cart before the horse. People, they, some of them were in the city, but most... They were very, very comfortable. They were like, Nehemiah, great wall. In fact, Nehemiah, should we ever come under attack, you know what we're going to do? We're going to run into the city and hide behind your walls. Thank you very much. As long as we don't, but as long as we don't need you, as long as we don't need the walls, we're going to just be out here where it's comfortable where we've got our homes, we've got our communities, we have our farms. Why would we want to go in the city? Nehemiah faces this problem that really every leader in you know, leading God's people, leading even in New Testament times forward, leading the church, faces. 
Because if you're a leader, then what you are actually leading people to do is not to follow your vision. You're trying to lead the church as a whole and each individual Christian to more and more become Christ-like, which means to more and more deny self and follow Jesus. Die to self and take up the cross. In other words, to leave the comfortable that you're used to and go into the city that God is establishing. And it's a constant struggle because people will, will look at Christianity. They will, they will look at Christianity. They will look at the church and they will say, thank you. And should I ever be in need, I know where to run. I know where I can find protection. I know where I can get prayer. I know where there can be people who will walk with me. But until I need you, I'm going to live outside the city. I'm going to benefit from being close, but I'm never going to really become part of the city. So Nehemiah, he, he, he's dealing with this in a very, very different way than we deal with it. But what gets him through is that he's faithful to do whatever God has before him. And this whole situation is a, is a reminder that, that, that if you're going to do ministry, if you're going to be really involved in ministry, and I don't mean by being a pastor or a missionary, I mean simply by being a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are by definition a minister. And if you're going to engage in ministry, one of the first things you have to understand is that ministry is lifelong. It's lifelong. It's not one big giant gesture, one big project that, all right, I, I did what God asked for me to do when I was 37 years old, and all right, now I can just live out my years. Ministry is a lifelong project. Ministry is, is, is never completed, not in our lifetime. Remember, Nehemiah is not just building a wall. He's not just building a city. He's trying to build a nation. He's trying to reestablish a covenant people here in the promised land. Jesus, you know, Jesus has to give this teaching that sometimes people misunderstand when he says, he says, you will always have the poor. What was Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you know the nature, human nature, the way you guys do things, the way you organize yourselves, that whole, you know, competition thing and society based on that? There will always be winners and losers. There will always be rich and poor. He wasn't saying there will always be poor, so ignore them. Saying you always have the poor means you will always have people to minister to. Always. You shouldn't get in your head that you're going to solve the problem of poverty. 
No. You weren't called to solve the problem of poverty. You're called to minister to those who are poor because you will always have the poor. And for some people, they find this very depressing. They're like, I like jobs that have a clear starting point and a clear ending point. I don't like these jobs that just keep going on and on and on and on. Then I don't know how you can do ministry. There are always people who need to hear the gospel. There are always other Christians who need to grow in their faith. There are always people who are hurting that need comfort, who are broken that need healing. They're always there. And you can close your eyes and cover your ears and, and you know, just try not to see them. But they're there. Ministry is a lifelong project. And that's why we need time to stop. Remember when Jesus is saying this, you'll always have the poor. He's saying it because you know, people were kind of getting upset that someone was wasting money anointing Jesus. Sometimes we got to stop. We got to rest. We got to catch our breath. Because ministry is a lifelong project. You can, always, you can only go so fast and so hard for so long. I sometimes wish what I know about running I knew when I was much younger because if so, you guys might be able to tell people like, you know, uh, our pastor was in the Olympics. Um, you know, not that I would have made it in the Olympics, but I do know that I know a lot of stuff now that I didn't know back then. Back then, and by back then I mean from high school all the way up, and the way I knew to train, we knew one way to train. And the way I knew to train was this. Run as hard as you can today, and then run as hard as you can tomorrow. And then the next day, try to run even harder. And I would do that. And when I was younger and my body was you know, a little easier to kind of move and everything, I could do it for a long time. But when I got a little bit older, I tried to do that. I had a good six or seven months of every day trying to run faster and longer. And then body started to break down, started to get mentally burned out. Muscles that I didn't even know I had started to complain. Why? Because I didn't know the value of rest. I didn't know that you can't simply go as hard as you can every day. And it's kind of intoxicating though when you are because I'm going to tell you for the first three, four, five months, I was getting really fast. I, I, I was like from, you know, not, you know, after spending a couple years not training seriously, and then all of a sudden I was getting really fast. 
And it's like, well, if I just keep doing this, then, you know, six more months, I'll, I'll be this fast. And, you know, a year from now, two years from now, I'll be this fast. It's like, no. It's not how we were designed. We need to prepare. We need to rest. We need to catch our breath. Because ministry is lifelong. We also see here that everything that's happened up to this point and now what's happening here leading to the next point is that, is that God is preparing His people for the next step. This has been the first job and this job has taught them valuable things. It's taught them who's really faithful. It's taught them who is really willing to sacrifice and commit and be united and who isn't. It's taught them that they can do incredible things, even things that are considered miraculous because they've come together and they're working together. But this is just preparing them for what's coming next. So there's this need sometimes to reflect and think like, okay, here we are today. How has God brought us along? How has He changed us? How has He prepared us for the next step? For what lies ahead? You see, one of the reasons a lot of people don't like to take breaks, they don't like to catch, to catch, to catch their breath, is because they think they will never start again. When I, when I started running again with, uh, you know, a few years ago, and I would go out... Um, and I, I, would, I would be afraid of traffic lights because I didn't yet learn yet how to stretch well and do all of that. And I was afraid of traffic lights because my 50-plus-year-old body, as long as it kept moving, it was fine. But if it had to stop at a traffic light for even 30 seconds, legs did not want to move again. And so I'd be running with my at the traffic light because they don't want to keep running. Me, I'm trying to the traffic light because they don't want to keep running. Me, I'm trying to race through it because I know if I stop, I might not start again. And one of the reasons people who are, who are goers, one of the reasons they don't want to stop is because they're afraid they'll never start again. We, we, we can't think like that. We, we have to understand the importance of taking that break, catching our breath, but it's only so that we can start again. The, the Christian leader is one who's always thinking and preparing for what comes next. There's that short and long term. There's this phrase I thought about, like a good principle for leadership is, is letting things grow without letting them go. You know, um, you know there's, there's, there's certain leadership. I don't think about all those things because I don't micromanage. Sometimes that's true, they don't micromanage, but sometimes that's an excuse not to care and not to really think about what's going on under their watch. 
We do need to let things grow. I, I, I in no way want this church to simply be what's in my brain of what this church should be. I want there to be tons of space for so many other people to be able to come in and, and, and really whatever this church becomes be, be something that's far beyond what I can even imagine now. I want to let it grow. But at the same time, I can't just let it go. I can't just sit back and say, all right, we got the wall built. Let Jerusalem be whatever Jerusalem's going to be. And so we also see here that Nehemiah realizes, I have to deal with what's right, right now, but I have to be planning for what lies ahead. Well, everyone else is celebrating this beautiful new wall. I have to be thinking, what's next? We can't just assume like, oh, we've, we've crossed this threshold, so now we don't have to plan as much. We don't have to think as much. You know, the same discipline that Nehemiah had, the same faithfulness that he had to, to even get to where he was and to get the wall built, he needs to continue to apply. It's this thing of consistency. Not just, I can gear up for one big moment. You know, I, I like to watch baseball and, you know, once in a while they'll have these really, you know, odd statistics and things like, um, and I always want to look at them, especially like whenever the season starts, like there'll be this rookie who just came up, you know, never, never played in the major leagues. In his first at bat, he hits a home run. And of course, everybody talks about it. You know, all the news, oh, his first at bat, he hits a home run. And then they'll say, here's a list of all the players who hit a home run in their first major league at bat. And there's usually about 20 or 30 people on that kind of list. Even as a baseball fan, I look at that list, I don't recognize most of the names. They had that one moment. Their career started really well. They had a home run. But how good of a player were they? Based on one and the rest of the season? Based on the rest of the season? Not so much. A lot of times we want to make that big, grand gesture and then, you know, walk off. You know, this is my moment. Ministry is not that way. Ministry is not about grand gestures. It's about living and serving people every single day. Nehemiah continues, he says, Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, and then he gives like this long list, which I'm not going to read. But he says, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvai, Nehum, and Baana. 
And he says, the following were those who came up from Tel-Melah, Tel-Harsha, Cherub, Adam, and Immer. But they could not prove their father's houses, nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And it lists these people that couldn't prove that they were actually part of the, the tribes of Israel. And included in this, you see in verse 63, were, the, were some of the priests. And in verse 64 it says, These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim, Urim and Thummim should arise. Again, it's tempting. You, you, you're starting new. You're, you're there and, and you've built this wall. You get this great victory. And, and of the covenant people, the majority of the covenant people don't want to to come and live in the city. They still want to stay outside. It would be really tempting as a leader to say, covenant people, you don't want to live here? Then you know what? I'm just going to get anybody to come in and live here. It would be so tempting to do that. It would be so tempting to get, to get caught up in just that whole idea of, of numbers and, and having like you know, the warm bodies there. not what Nehemiah does. It's important. He wants to know who is the who's from the covenant people, from the genealogies. He's not trying to get the most he can. He wants to start right. He wants to start with an accurate number. It doesn't mean these people weren't going to be included. They could be included. But he wasn't going to compromise. Not here at the beginning. He then, it then goes on and it says, the whole assembly together was 42,360. And then it begins to detail um, not just who they are and their servants, but also how many horses and mules and camels and donkeys they had. And then in verse 70, it says something very interesting. It says, now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. And then it says, the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 directs of gold, 50 basin, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And then it says again, and some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury. And it tells what they gave. And then in verse 72, and it says, and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. I find that interesting. I find it interesting because of how it says some, some, some of the heads of fathers' houses, these would have been the most powerful, wealthiest people in, you know, of these, of these returned exiles. And he says, some of them gave, and then he tells us what they gave. 
But I'm also interested in what it doesn't say. And what it doesn't say is it doesn't say this. Now, some of these guys didn't support it at all. Some of these heads of fathers' houses just kept all their stuff. He doesn't focus on that at all. He's focusing on those who give, those who are committed, those who want to be part of the work, not those who don't. See, Nehemiah is putting into practice this principle that I think will work God, and that is God will work through the faithful working together. God will work through the faithful working together. It's one of the things that I have been blessed with not having, I think, situations like this where I need to think like this, and maybe I have, but I've just been too stupid to recognize it, and so I didn't do it. But I I never have this thought. I never have this thought like, you know, if, if we want to accomplish what I think God wants us to accomplish, I got to make sure I go get those guys who aren't supporting to get them to support. Now, that's, that's very tempting. It's very tempting to go and, and try to get, you know, people who are influential or powerful in the church to support what you're doing so then, so then you can go, okay, now we can move forward. That's what Nehemiah could have done. Nehemiah could have also just pointed out all the people that weren't helping. He could have listed them here. He could have mentioned that all these people that weren't helping, weren't contributing. He doesn't do it. He's following this principle. God will work with the faithful. One of the things I've tried to be committed to when I, since I've been here at the church is I've tried to be committed to I want to I work with the people that, that want to grow and want to serve and want to move. And I will listen to anybody. You want to come in my office and complain, and I'll probably agree with you. But that's kind of the end of the conversation. I'll probably agree with you. But that's kind of the end of the conversation because the person who does that, all they're doing is complaining. They're not moving. If you're going to help lead, it's easier to lead the people who are already moving. People who are already moving, who already care, it's just a matter of, if necessary, guiding and pointing in the right direction. But to get people who aren't moving to move, it's really hard. Really hard. And what Nehemiah is doing is like, hey, these are the faithful. They're the ones contributing. This is what God has blessed us with. He's not thinking about, man, if that other 30% would have given, we would have so much more and we could do so much more, so much faster. He's like, no. This is who 
God is providing through. Let's build with them. Let's build from there. He works with those who are faithful, those who are moving, those who are giving, those who are doing, rather than focusing on those who are not. And there's this recognition. Again, we don't, we don't appreciate it as much because we weren't there. We weren't there for decades, more than a century, hearing about Jerusalem, but seeing this pile of rubble. And then in the middle of the pile of rubble is this temple. We didn't hear all the grandiose plans of, yes, Next year, we're going to build the wall, or the feeble attempts to build the wall. We, we didn't see any of that. We weren't there when, if anybody actually organized something, how enemies stopped them. We didn't see any of that. And so we don't fully appreciate that within, within two months, less than two months, it went from a pile of rubble to a completed wall. We don't appreciate how much of a miracle that is. It's amazing. They did. And what they realized is God took all of their efforts and they had to work and they had to work hard but God took their efforts and he did something miraculous with it. So much so that 2,500 years later, us really smart Bible scholars will be like, it must have taken more than two months because we know how long it would take to build a wall using their technology. But he does it. And he does it through the faithful not through slave labor, not through conscript labor. He does it through faithful people, the noble and the powerful, the common, the supposed holy people, the priests. does it through them all. And it's amazing. Yeah, we need to catch our breath. And then we need to start taking the next steps that lie ahead, always seeking to be on mission for what God has called us to do.